Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. We're going to start with a verse in the fifth book of the Torah in Parshat Shoftim. Devarim chapter 17 verse 18. We're talking about the king in the future. We're talking about when a king is sitting on the throne of the people of Israel. When they are sitting on that throne, and he shall have a, a written copy of this Torah, HaTorah HaZot, which we're not going to spend time digging too deeply into, but it's very possible that what is being referred to here is this Torah, as in this book of Deuteronomy, of Devarim. It's possible that's what be, that what's being referred to is this Torah, as in the four prior books of the Torah. It's possible that it's all five of these books of the Torah, but the point is they are supposed to have a copy we're going to get into what copy means there they're supposed to have a manuscript and when is the printing press invented roughly when's gutenberg 1400s isn't it right it's in the 1400s and that also presumes some literacy on other people's parts as well so we are worlds away from having a codex. A codex is any kind of a book that has a binding i'm holding up a binding okay uh that kind of a book we have three stages to get to. The first is manuscript, things that are written, right? Manuscript is gonna be a written copy of a scribed something by hand. Manuscript is the copy of that written scribed something or sometimes an original manuscript of a something. Eventually a reprint of a something is going to take place inside uh, a bound book and that's not going to happen for centuries. So when we say a copy, we're not talking copy like you and I think of copies today. We're talking about a hand scribed copy, another Sefer Torah. So he should have a copy of a Sefer Torah. Uh, before him, by the uh, the class of priests that are the Leviim. So the question we're going to delve into is a question of why. Why does a king need to have a copy? Why does a king need to have a copy when he is seated on his throne? Why does this, what is the relevance of, as in why, why is it important that this be a copy of the teaching for him on a scroll that is presented before the Kohanim Halavi'im, or perhaps even written by the Kohanim Halavi'im? And what's the significance that we're told that this king has access and that there's a command for him to have access to another Torah scroll? We're going to work our way through the ages as to this why. Why have another Sefer Torah scroll? Herb, do you have an opening thought? Okay, and when we get to, when we get to the comment, the commentary in here that matches up with Eitz Chaim, will you wave your hand and say, that's what I read in Eitz Chaim? Because I'm sure it'll be here somewhere. We have a lot of commentary, okay? Will you wave at us and you'll say, I found the one that was in Eitz Chaim. Look at you. That's very good for you, practicing silence, Herb. Yeah, Vicky. Yeah. 
Does he already have a copy ready? It's a good question. How many copies exist even at this point? Wonderful question. Do we have a singular written copy of this Torah even at all? Because for so long already, this Torah was an oral existing document. We don't know. Because we're talking about a once and future king at this point anyway. It's a theoretical prescription. Exactly. Right. So to whom does it need to be available? Why does it need to be with the king? Right. It's the person who makes the law. So is it is it about that? It's a great supposition, right? Does it need to be available with the law making body who is the sovereign? The, the head sovereign needs to hold on to it because they are the law making individual. Ultimately, that is a great opening gambit. OK, we're going to look at Rashi to start with 11th to 13th century. And then we're going to look at his grandson, Rashbam, who ostensibly says the same thing as him, but brings a little more clarity. So he says, Shtei Torah, Munachat bevet genazav, v'achat shenich neset v'yotzet imo. This is the most commonly mentioned, uh, and I think baseline assumption for what these two Sifrei Torah are and why more than one Sifrei Torah. Okay, assumption number one. There should be two scrolls of the Torah. That's assumption number one. That Mishnei Torah means he should have a copy of the Torah, as in he shouldn't just have one Torah, he should have two. Not that this teaching is to say that he should have a copy of the Torah, but that he should have copies of the Torah. There should be a Torah, and he should also have a copy of the Torah. Why? Such that one is put in his Geniza, bless you, that one is placed into his treasury which would be where where would that be where would a king's geniza be a rather private place but probably a treasury would be like where's our treasury here in this country it's 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 in our capital city right it's it's in a home base where right it's going to be kept in a in a safe home base place and then another one for when he goes out and comes back, meaning one, a, perhaps a small scroll that's carried with him everywhere he goes. So this becomes an assumption that one should have one that that is that that one that a king should have a copy, pardon me, a copy of the Torah scroll that is kept in sort of the treasury and one that's kept uh, with him when he goes out and comes back. And and then we're going to get to a second understanding, which comes from Unclos's translation of the word as potshegen, which should be a familiar word to you from the Megillah if, of all places, from Megillat Esther, uh, which, ha which he renders as, in translation as a copy, having to do with the uh, sake of um, uh, simply the, the co uh, copy of the Torah scroll being a copy as in it should be something that is repeated in utterance. It is repeated and repeated and repeated. We're going to get there when we get to Rashbam, but I want to stick with Rashi's initial understanding that there are two copies of the scroll written, one that lives back in the home base, sort of in the capital city, and one that goes out with the king and comes back. Why would that be important? Why would it be important for a copy to live back at the home base and one to go out and come back with the king? What do you think, Sam? So first of all, one of them is secure. It's kept safe, right? It's no longer just an oral Torah, but it's a written, understood, complete, uh, fixed document, and it's kept secure. Right. So the key phrase in what you said that, that rings bells for me is, and it might need use. The king might need to 
execute something legally while on the go. And therefore, he might need access to these laws. He can't pull out his smartphone and and uh, get into legal databases to look up the statutes and laws. But rather, he needs the Torah to consult uh, while he's on the go, and he might be asked important questions. Right. Uh, and I want to I want to kind of poke at this point for a second. Moshe didn't have that necessarily. What did Moshe have in his lifetime? Thank you. Moshe had the direct line to God. This this notes an enormous paradigm shift. What's happening here when it comes to what we're being told about the relationship between the leadership of the people of Israel and decision making and how one makes decisions based on the path set forward by the Holy One, blessed be God. What is the new paradigm we are being asked to follow? Right. The, the law isn't lost for Moses. The question is when Moses had to be out there and making decisions. Right. Right. So that's true that, that these people all have the laws that have been passed down from Moses. But what's also different about these people who follow Moses is that unlike Moses, they don't have access to a direct line with the divine. And that's a change in, in the paradigm of who they're turning to. So when Moshe had questions ultimately about what was being asked, when there was, for example, I'll give you the Benot Slovchad, the daughters of Slovchad, when there was a clear difficulty in the law about inheritance, Moshe ultimately, after being petitioned by those daughters on inheritance law, went directly to God to ask the question and then came back with an answer about what that law would be. Now that that law has been handed from Moshe to the next people, that's a critical handing down of the law, but it is a paradigm shift because now we don't have people going to God directly to ask for sort of mitigation of, of difficult issues. Instead, we have consultation with the laws that were handed to them by Moshe. You're right, but it's a different paradigm. It's a different paradigm. So Rashbam wants us to look at this differently too. Rashbam wants us to look at this as more than just having a copy of the law with the king and also a copy of the law that lives back in the home base. Rashbam, who is, I love this uh, particular teaching because it starts out um, by saying, you know, my, my grandfather Rashi, okay? Uh, he, he says, he, it, this is explained um, it, as being uh, two different scrolls, okay? These are Shnei Sifrei Torah. These are two different um, scrolls because what Uncleos is saying in his translation is that Mishnah, you see that Shin Nun is related to the Shin Nun Nun, which has to do with teaching, and teaching takes place or took place by way of repeating. Every time you repeat the way that things were learned, particularly in a, in a uh, society based on oral law, teaching was repeating and repeating was teaching. So what was it that was so critical about creating a copy of the Torah in this particular view by Rashbam? He's building on this idea of, of uh having two copies and that the king should have one with him and also one back at home base. What else do you accomplish by creating a copy? It's a matter of education for the layperson. It's a matter of educating perhaps even the king. 
It's a matter of even having a copy. I like this is a bracketed remark, and I think it's actually the bracketed remark in the English at the bottom of the Rashbam is actually taking in commentary from a completely different commentary that comes in later, which is perhaps even one that a lay person could understand. Okay, uh, having another copy that was translated in such a way that a lay person could understand it. Because of course, every copy is a translation and every translation is an interpretation. Have you ever read a book that was originally written in a different language, not the Torah? Have you ever read a book that was translated from another language, not the Torah? You must have, right? Have you done that before? I'm, I'm thinking of, um, Right now, the book that comes to mind for me is uh, this incredible Pulitzer Prize winning book called Blindness by Jose Saramago. Anyone read that book? I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's a really extraordinary book. It was written about 15 years ago. Uh, Jose Saramago um, wrote it. In, it's a very Faulkner-esque style. There's little punctuation, if any. Um, originally written in Portuguese, and I don't understand Portuguese, so I can't go back and read the original, uh, but it's my understanding that, that the book is profoundly different uh, in its original. I loved it. I was so moved by it. It's about a, a, a plague of a blindness that comes upon a particular um, part of contemporary society, and it it's amazing. Um, I, I, can't, I can't recommend it enough, and I've been told by my Portuguese-speaking friends and colleagues that uh, it just isn't the same. Um, so I the understanding is that to read something in translation is always going to be a matter of reading somebody's commentary, the commentary of the translator. The translation every, is a commentary. every translation is a commentary, every single one, every single one, which is why there is this buried comment here that every time that we are copying over the Torah, in some respect, with an attempt to make it more accessible to the lay person, we are also making an interpretation. Yes, Rosa. True. And what I'll say back to the point of it, that the fact that it must be accessible, Judaism must be accessible to every person living every day is, A, here in this place, we're talking about the necessity of having a Torah at hand so that a king can make the kind of rulings that a king must make, as opposed to, of course, the accessibility that all of us need to have to the Torah, which belongs to all of us. That's one thing. Another thing is that this commentary in brackets at the end does not belong to this Rashbam. And as we turn the page, which I'm going to invite you to do, we're going to go and encounter where this comes from, where this idea comes from. So let's get into it. Let's first move to the Sifte Chachamim, who have the question... Why, why is it necessary to mention that this is something that the king needs when he's sitting on his throne? What's the point of having it when he's sitting on his throne and when the people are occupying the land? Why does that matter? Should that even matter? Should it even really matter that we're talking about a king? The to lamali. Like, why is that so important? Otherwise, why is that phrase when he occupies necessary? Shouldn't have just been written? He should write for himself a Mishneh Torah. He was no more obligated than any other person in Israel to write a Torah scroll. In other words, every person is obligated in their lifetime, ideally, to write a copy of the Torah scroll, to have a copy of the Torah scroll. Rosa, this actually goes to your point to a certain extent. Every person, ideally should be able to have a copy of their own Torah scroll. 
The Torah belongs to us. Ideally, we should all have it. And so what is it that's so important? And this is going to lead us to our next point that I think is much more well fleshed out in Sanhedrin and the Mishnah, actually not, not even in getting into the Talmud in Sanhedrin. I think they flesh out this answer much better. But the question is, why would a king especially need to have a copy of the Sefer Torah? Because the Torah informs him in such a way that if he fulfills Torah law well, his kingdom will endure. It's important, perhaps even more important for a king than for other people, to live well by the Torah and to judge well by the Torah. For if a king does that, his kingdom will be a kingdom that endures. This is what the Sifte Chachamim have to say. Because the Torah is a Torah of ethics and it is a Torah of guidance and it is a Torah for leaders, among other things. Yes, Tybal. But isn't it also important that this shows that the king in the future is not going to be a king as other societies have understood it because other kings, they've got a crown, they've got a throne, they've got orb and scepter, which is the authority devolves upon them. And this is a visible, tangible reminder that the king, in fact, is a different kind of king. It's subordinate to the Torah. Yes. Beautifully stated. This king is also a king who serves another king. You're making a commentary that isn't on this page, but is so vital and so critical, Taibal. This is a king who serves another king. That is elsewhere in our Talmud and elsewhere in our Torah. And I agree that the king carrying around a safer Torah, not a commentary found in this series of pages, but I could find you a couple that speak really beautifully to it, a couple of Midrashim about that. Our king serves a higher king. A king carrying around the Torah is also a reminder of the one to whom that king is subservient. You're absolutely right. And that is a differentiation between us and other people, between that king and other kings, beautifully stated. And I want to move into Sanhedrin because Sanhedrin takes us into an even clearer place, I think, about what it is that a king might even do with this Torah in his possession as he goes out to war. We're going to skip halfway through it about what it is when he goes out to war. And the king writes himself a Torah scroll for his sake. And when he goes out to war, he brings it out with him. And when he comes in from war, he brings it with him. And when he sits in judgment, it's with him. And when he reclines to eat, it is opposite with him. And as it is stated, it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. If you flip to uh, the second to last page, but don't read too far ahead, I include the next line in the Torah that I didn't include on the first page that it um, that begins with that's how the next verse in the Torah reads. The idea is that Sanhedrin is reading on to the next line in the Torah saying this Torah scroll, the reason why the king has a Torah scroll for for uh, with him at all times is that it's for his sake in his being in every part of his life. It should be with him when he goes out to war. It should be with him when he comes back from war. It should be with him when he's judging and then it, when he's done judging. And it should also be with him when he goes and he eats like a human being. It should simply be with him because he's a person and he's a Jew. And this is what he should have with him all the days of his life. And if you have a copy of the law with you, then it's with you both when you go out to war and also when you come back. 
Why two copies? Because it's there for you for the mundane and also for the not mundane purposes. You should have copies of the Torah with you because the Torah is there for you as a king and therefore as a model for all other people that the Torah is there for you in profound moments like war, in the most precarious of moments, and also when you eat, right? How is the Torah there for us when we eat, right? We have rules about what we should and shouldn't eat. And what is it that we do when we eat that makes us mindful per the Torah? Right, achata v'savata uverachta. We have an acknowledgement from whence our food came. We, we eat, and then in our satiation, we thank God. In addition to that, we have ways of treating our agricultural places as, as spaces in which social justice can take place. We have ways of treating our neighbors in our farming and agriculturally based societies in fair ways. We have so many ways in which food consumption and food, food waste, food treatment, treatment of animals in preparation for food. That was even in this week's Parsha, the way that we treat animals with compassion, should we be preparing them for food? And Sarbali Chaim, all of these things are related to food. So should the Torah be sitting opposite you when you eat? I think it's a Kavachomer. Should it sit opposite the king, it sits opposite the rest of us. Go to the next source, and I'm going to ask you to skip over the first half of the Akedat Yitzchak, which I want you to have with you for context, but for the sake of time, I want us to skip over to the second half of the page. I'm sorry, the second half of the source and to the back side of the page. The page that begins with mitzvot are the foundation of personal and national well-being. This is so since it not only leads to the development of personal virtues, but also helps us avoid the many pitfalls man is exposed to. Then we're going to go all the way down to Joshua. This is what, uh, what Bob was reminding us of. Joshua is commanded to have access to a safer Torah, a Torah scroll at all times. Kings are to write it and study it. History shows that whenever a Jewish king treated Torah as a most precious possession and source of inspiration, so did his people. On the other hand, as soon as the king ignored the Torah, the people were not long in following suit. The result was usually disastrous and not too long in coming. The reason the king is elected as a model for how to treat Torah, it simply is that the king's safety is symbolic of the security of the entire nation. When the aging David could not longer actively participate in battle without endangering his life, unduly his generals were most concerned to keep him in a safe place, pointing out that his personal safety was the key to the nation's success in battle and to the maintenance of morale among the population. The Talmud in Erechin 17 states each generation according to its leaders. The meaning is that the fate of the generations is in large measure due to the actions of its leaders. So why is it so important? that kings have the Torah with them at all times? Do they behave in a way to be emulated? And I heard something else here. To rule justly, to set an example for the people, to go back to a previous commentary, because in the Sifte Chachamim, we hear, his kingdom will endure, right? That is what the verse tells us. The verse says that he should have he should have it when he's seated on his throne. So it's it's almost as if it's inversing it inverting the verse. As long as he has a Torah with him, he will be seated on his throne. He's going to have an enduring nation. 
so long as he has it in front of him. Because you know why Suzaki Yitzchak, who teaches us great morals and ethics? Because his people will see the way that he is acting and because he will rule justly and ethically. And so long as he is guided by those principles, he will find his people emulating that as well. And he will rule the nation justly. I say he because we're talking about a king this whole time, but a queen would be great too. If I were queen of Judaism, by the way, I have a whole list. I would remember people on their birthdays instead of their yard sites. I'm just going to mention that one because I think you'd vote for me, but we could talk later. I have a whole list. <laughs> Much less controversial than second day Yom Tov. I'm just saying. Okay. So but before you turn to the last page, I want to tell you something. I think this could be it. I think I could end the shior here and it would be, it would be powerful enough. I do. I think... I think that the notion of having a king who has the Torah before them at all times, has copies of the Torah school, when they go out to war, when they come back, has them written, has them with them, has different copies of them, perhaps even copies that are available to lay people such that they are readable, legible, understandable to the lay people. All of these are very important. But nothing has moved me more than the teaching of the Ketav Sofer. The Ketav Sofer who lived in the 19th century and Hungary, read this verse totally differently. He says basically the following. You know, you've heard many teachings. I'm going to take this out of here for a second. You've probably heard many teachings over your lifetime about rabbis who found ways to be lenient in their Torah, rabbis who were just generally lenient in the in the way uh, that they judge you know the story of the rabbi and the chicken the woman who comes to the rabbi with the chicken uh, a student comes to rabbi says i don't know if the chicken is uh, kosher that this woman brought to me and his teacher the rabbi is the teacher says did you look at the woman the question being not one of whether the chicken was kosher but whether the woman who brought the chicken to this person was in need of the chicken being declared kosher because we want to be sure that we are making rulings not just based on simple rules, black and white of kashrut, but also on the level of leniency that we ought to rule with, given the needs of the person who stands in front of us. That's, that's the human aspect of Judaism at work in halacha. But that's only one side. We sometimes need to act with stringency. Our way of being as rabbis and as teachers as leaders and as rulers in communities means that when we have one rule book, say when a judge has one rule book and they have a person before them, the way that they judge has to do with the person who stands before them, the case that is before them. And no one judge is ever completely lenient. And no one judge is ever completely stringent. They may have reputations, but they usually have a way of looking at the law that can let them read it more leniently and a way of looking at the law that can allow them to look at it more inside the box and more stringently. This is the way that Rav Avraham Shmuel Binyamin Schreiber, the Ketav Sofer, writes. He says, every king, leader, or rabbi should have two safer Torahs, one that's for home, and when we say home, we say for their self, for which he should observe every mitzvah with strict precision, bishirut uvdik danut, carefully and with great precision. 
and the other to take with him to the people with which he shows more latitude, teaching them more according to the spirit of the law. Bifnim Mishurat Hadin, going out to them with the spirit of the law. I read this in two ways, and I'll leave it with you two ways. I think that originally the Ketav Sofer really meant to say, you learned rabbis, you learned judges, you learned teachers, you have permission to be as strict with yourselves and perhaps a responsibility to be as strict with yourselves with your one Torah scroll as possible, as you wish to be. But when you go and you teach, you owe it to the people who you lead and you teach to be as lenient as possible because that is the balance necessary in a community to be healthy. And that is what your people need from you. But I also think that present in that teaching is the possibility that everybody has access to two lenses of Torah. There's the strict and there's the lenient and both exist. And those dualities are there and they are there within the Shivim Panim Torah and the 70 faces of the Torah. And the fact that both can exist at the same time is part of that extraordinary meta plurality that can be held in there being more than one copy of the Torah in the world. What a beautiful thing. Every single one of these Sifrei Torah all around the building represents minimally 70 different ways that we could think about every law that's in it. And I couldn't love that more. And as a leader, I strive all the time for both of these things. I'll have to always be stricter with myself and more lenient looking outward. And also to remember that there is always minimally two different ways that I can look at a law and carry it out directing outwards. So I appreciate the study time with all of you. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.